You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Thank you for joining us for a very special Pratt Library poetry event tonight at Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. Um, Thank you for braving the crazy summer monsoon we're having. Um, It'll be a great night of poetry that won't disappoint you. So now I'm going to pass it over to Stephen Leva from the Little Patuxent Review, and I hope you enjoy your evening. Thank you all for coming um, out uh, tonight to celebrate these wonderful poets. It's an honor to be working with the Pratt again. It's always so great to work with readers and librarians who are so diligently um, uh, advocates for um, poetry in the city of Baltimore and in uh, central Maryland and and in all the state as well. Um, I, I'm pretty sure when I was walking across the street, the 10 feet across the street, that I saw animals gathering two by two. Um, so it is really just, um, it warms my heart that everyone came, despite um, uh, the insistence of the weather. Um, so we um, are going to get right into things. My name is Stephen, as Tracy mentioned. I'm the editor of the Little Patuxent Review, and I had the honor, along with Um, a small committee of judging the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contest. And so tonight we wanted to give you a kind of overview of um, a couple of winners from the past um, and then the finalists from this year as well. Uh, I guarantee you that each of these poems are going to fill your heart um, and uh, work out the, the, um, the muscle of your imagination. Um, But before we get into it, um, I thought it would be appropriate to have a moment of silence for Toni Morrison, who passed um, uh, today. Um, If you don't know who Toni Morrison is, she's a giant of American arts and letters, um, won the Nobel Prize, the Pulitzer Prize, um, and is someone who is very important to me, and I'm sure many of you as well. So um, if you would, a moment of silence for Toni Morrison. Thank you. Tony Morrison's famous for saying, um, I didn't fall in love, I rose in it. And I hope she continues to rise in love. Uh, all right, so our first reader is a dear friend of mine. His name is Joseph Ross. Some of you may know him because he's read here before. Um, but he was the first winner of the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contest um, for a poem ca- called If Mamie Till Was the Mother of God. I'm sure he's going. I'm sure he's going to read uh, that today. But let me tell you a little bit about Joseph. Joseph won the poetry contest in 2012 and is the author of four books of poetry, um, including *Raising King*, which is coming out this next year in 2020, all about Martin Luther King Jr. Um, his previous works are *Ache*, *Gospel of Dust*, and *Meeting Bone Man*. All of those books of poetry are awesome. His poems have appeared in many places, including the Los Angeles Times, Xavier Review, Southern Quarterly, Poet Lore, and Drum Voices, as well as the Little Patuxent Review. In 2014-2015, he served as the 23rd Poet in Residence for Howard County Poetry and Literature Society. He teaches English at Gonzaga College High School in Washington, D.C., and you can find his work at josephross.net, where he writes regularly. Please welcome Joseph Ross. Thank you, Stephen, uh, and thanks all of you for coming tonight uh, in this crazy weather. Um, thanks, Little Patuxent Review, for continuing to partner with the Pratt. Uh, everybody who works at the Pratt, uh, you're just remarkable. You you treat poets with such care and kindness and, and advocacy, the work that you do there for lots of writers uh, is amazing to me, and I'm just deeply, deeply grateful. Um, I want to start uh, tonight with some words of Toni Morrison. 
This is precisely the time when artists go to work. There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. In, in case some don't know the rough outlines of this story, Mamie Till was a mother in Chicago raising a, a son, 14-year-old boy, Emmett, and decided that he should spend the summer with his Mississippi relatives. So put him on a train. He went uh, to Money, Mississippi, uh, staying in his grandfather's house, was there not very long, and uh, uh, two men came in in the middle of the night, took him out of the house, tortured and killed him threw him in the Tallahatchie River with a cotton gin fan around his neck. Um, the, the more that I tried to, I, of course I did not learn about that ever in school, um, but the more I confronted that story or the more that his story confronted me, uh, I tried to dig into it and to learn and to read, uh, and I came to this great admiration for Mamie Till, a mother not a politician, not a policy person, uh, but she saw in a particular moment, uh, she had to fight with the state of Mississippi to get her son's body back. When she did, she, of course, could hardly believe the, the state that it was in. So made what I think is a really heroic decision to have a clear top on the casket, as I think she said, so the world can see what they did to my boy. And as you probably know, pictures then in Ebony and Jet, uh, some people say, you know, kind of ignited the civil rights movement. Uh, and she made this decision, had to be at the worst moment of her life. If Mamie Till was the mother of God. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, one of the Ten Commandments would forbid whistling. No one could wear cotton clothing. Every cotton field would be burned in praise of 14-year-old boys and their teeth. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, every river would be still, so nothing thrown in could travel downstream. Barbed wire could only be worn as a necklace by senators. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, every coffin lid would be glass, so even God could see how baptisms are done in Mississippi. Digging into Mamie Till's story, uh, I discovered lots of things. Uh, but in particular, I discovered a man named Willie Lewis. Willie Lewis was 18 years old. He was walking down a dirt road outside of Money, Mississippi, and saw uh, a pickup truck fly by with a couple of black men in the back and something covered in canvas and a couple of white men in the cab of the truck. Later, he saw that same truck parked by a barn and heard horrible screaming inside the barn. He testified against the men who killed Emmett Till uh, and as a result had to leave Mississippi, had to have FBI protection for a couple of years, didn't even tell his wife in Chicago where he ended up uh, until they had been married for many years. Um, so these poems I want to honor him. Here are three short poems. Uh, when Your Word is a Match. Willie Lewis died in 2013. When you walk past Klansmen smiling at you on your way into the courthouse, wondering how you will ever live here after this airless day. When you tell the story of a pickup truck, a barn, a boy, a threat. When you point at two men in the courtroom and everyone gasps at what they have never seen before but know is true. When your word is a matchhead hissing into flame, testifying aloud but blown out as soon as you speak. When all the air in the courtroom shakes its white head. When the smiling men brag about killing the boy in the barn. When they joke about a river, about what cannot float. When you flee to the mother's city to breathe air that isn't a gasp, when you hide the name your parents gave you for fear the men from the barn will come smiling for you too, 
When you speak to your wife years later, after a lifetime of breathing beside her, when this air thick as lead presses your chest to breaking, when the matches flame consumes all the air, revealing a coffin, a boy, a mother, and you burning still. Eighteen years. What in your 18 years taught you this language? Who knew picking cotton in another man's field could strengthen your hand to rise like this? You heard the lawyer's question. You knew its answer. So you raised your hand from the wooden witness box and pointed at two men who knew nothing of picking cotton, who knew nothing of bent backs. You spoke their names aloud into air that never knew yours. You. You didn't know the boy. He was no kin to you. You knew he was visiting. You were in ninth grade. You were a son, too. You worked in a field. Your grandfather knew your name. You'd been in the store once. You had a calendar that said 1955. You knew August was a hot month. You didn't know the boy but you knew how to point. Nelson Mandela speaks to Manny Till. On some August nights, I think every mother is a martyr. I know you would resist that thought. It was your son, you would say, not you. And you would be right and you would be wrong. Mothers loved sons in 1955, especially when the sons slept hundreds of miles away. I was banned that year. It was the year of beginning of living in, in rocks, behind rocks. By the end, I knew about walls, too. Wooden walls of barns where screams could not be seen, transparent walls of coffins letting a country see what it had to save. In my last book, there's a series of poems uh, called Requiem to Trayvon Martin, and I want to read one poem from that called Litany, thinking about some other mothers now. A mother should never have to ask for the body of her son more than once. But in America, this request becomes a pleading, a litany, to which believers respond, no. He will not be buried in Mississippi, no. His name is not John Doe, no. He was riding the BART train home, not starting anything, no. A collapsed life should not lie four hours in a street bleeding in protest, no. You may not take a photograph of his body, no, his story will not end in Memphis. No. For Gilberto Ramos, a 15-year-old Guatemalan boy who died in the Texas desert in June 2014. Before you left, your mother draped you with 50 Hail Marys, a rosary of white wood, a constellation she hoped might guide you. But Texas does not know these prayers. It knows that desert air is thirsty and you are made of water. It drank you slowly. Your name only linked to your body by the string of aves still around your neck, the small cross pressing against your wooden skin, the color of another cross. You left home on May 17th with one change of clothes and two countries ahead of you. Your brother's phone number hidden on the back of your belt buckle so the coyote couldn't find it. The coyotes pray in the language of extortion. The phone number was found by a Texas official whose name your brother couldn't remember. She called and spoke in the language of bones. He translated her words into, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. His prayer meant 
brother, a word he kept moist just beneath his tongue. About another woman, sort of mother. In all my education, no teacher or professor ever spoke the name Harriet Tubman. Maybe they feared the sounds would crackle in the complacent air, would charge the oxygen in the classroom, singeing the edges of history books. Or maybe her lawlessness angered them, the anarchy of her hands. Perhaps her inability to read upset their measures of strength and incompetence. Or it might be that her feminine determination, her constant return, her risks, her breath always under her own control was more than they thought we students should imagine. I mean, how could it be that this woman of seizures, this revolutionary in rags, could see so clearly into the bones of America? Let me finish with um, a found poem. The original accusation against Emmett Till was that he said something to Carolyn Bryant, who worked in this little store in Money, Mississippi. She never spoke about that, except at the time of his trial. She never spoke. Um, of course, the men were acquitted. Uh, and then admitted a year later in an interview that they, did, that they in fact, had killed him. Just uh, two years ago, Carolyn Bryant was uh, interviewed by Timothy B. Tyson, a researcher at Duke, doing um, a, a new book, a book called The Blood of Emmett Till, and she spoke this sentence. Nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. what Carolyn Bryant said. That boy happened to nothing ever. What could to justify that? What nothing did to boy? Him happened, did him, that ever. To justify what? Could nothing ever to what? Could boy ever? could ever happened. Boy did what? Boy did two. Boy did nothing. Justify what? Justify ever to him. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Joseph. Um, I hope some of you can see um, why he won <laughs> um, one of the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contests. Um, I'm always moved by uh, Joseph's ability to bring history um, together um, in lyricism and make us see ourselves um, in ways that maybe we're not always comfortable seeing. Um, so I'm going to read a few of my own poems. Um, <laughs> um, they are uh, a, a little different than um, uh, uh, Joseph's, but I hope you enjoy them. Um, and I'll read a few poems from a manuscript called The Understudies Handbook, um, which is um, the book I'm currently sort of shopping around. But I'm going to start with a poem. Um, that is really built on, on metaphor. I think metaphor is one of the things that holds us all together. Um, and it did anyone has anyone did anyone grow up playing badminton? Okay, so you'll understand the the metaphor a bit. Um, but the poem is called Supremacy. Consider the shuttlecock. Its deft lightness, its rubber nose unbent. Its attention to racket, its fear of the ground, its willingness to lob or smash, its whiteness, 
its penchant for being held aloft by the slightest breeze or histories of swing, how it needs to be batted between two players, how it recognizes their want. Consider its feathers, its plastic, its conical shape suggesting hierarchy, and always its weight in your hand, how it seeks to be served. <laughs> One day that poem will not be relevant. Uh, I'm a really big comic book fan, really big Spider-Man fan, um, and I uh, wrote a poem about taking my children um, to see Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Um, and it's also about us being, well, what does it mean to be Afro-Latino in, um, in the world today? The silver screen asks, what's up danger after we enter? A lobby shaped like a yawn, lined with lodestone, left over from making the marquee. The Congress of picture shows and pulp flicks, it seems, named this movie house the senator. Or maybe the city loves to signify. I guess it matters little to a mill worker, stevedore, or teamster how the name came to be. My son and daughter, who will never walk home covered in soot, longing for a moment in the mudroom to be responsible for nothing but removing a coat and lacing a boot. My children slide like two slightly rusted magnets toward the aluminum rail post guarding the popcorn counter. All the candy encased in glass like masks in a museum. They've forgotten our talk in the parking lot about Miles Morales, about his animated face being so near to us, even without 3D, that this Afro-Latino Spider-Man could be our cousin in a more marvelous universe. But when they sit in the senator's unstadium seats, with the ghosts of reel-to-reel clicking their tongues, what I see on my children's faces is not a season of phantasmal peace, but what's left when the world's terrors retreat, their whole brown skin illuminated like a trailer for another life. <laughs> Seasonal depression. You can see how this is going. <laughs> Seasonal depression. Give the termites your worry about affording the rent. They too are saying, eat the rich. Two kids up the block slash a neighbor's tires while the elderly couple are away at a wedding. Why do I even bother to tell anyone who's listening that everyone involved was white except me? Give the newborn mosquitoes their banquet of blood and your worry about diabetes and rotted teeth. Who can say what insectivore is waiting to eat the things that eat your worry? Joy, the long-tongued sloth, or joy, the pitcher plant. Given the insistence on phoenix your tendons return to, given the moles that arrive on your neck year after year from your grandmother, given the fact that every elegy fails to reach its true audience, why do I bother to slash and slash and slash white from this page? So I grew up in New Orleans. Uh, well, I was born in New Orleans. I grew up in Houston. New Orleans is a big city with a bit, lot of magic for me. Um, and it enters into my writing a lot, um, as I'm sure many people write about home and try to figure out what home means to them, right? Um, so are you all familiar with the term ear hustle? You know what that means? Ear hustle is like a slang way of saying eavesdropping, okay? Um, so here's a poem that's about New Orleans called Ear Hustle. Get down to the smallest birthright I cannot claim. Say beignets. And doesn't the stutter of hot oil start to sizzle the small plates of memory? Faces powdered with sugar, no thought to whose ancestors cut which cane, sing a hymn of mmm, mmm, mmm. 
Jackson Square hangs its portraits on the iron gates. And who can hold a horn note as long as the midday sun? Look up from that small plate and cafe Olay and see the bent levees of language I cannot break. I will shame every shibboleth. And every house is lifted like a paused rapture. This cruelty and more fries the godhead in lard. Pour me a cup of chicory. A saxophone player cuts a canal through the breakfast den, playing tank in the bangers. I gotta make a quick decision about how often I can be rescued. Neither I nor my children will ever ride the roller coasters at Jazzland, where a sign still hangs as it does in the heavens, will open after storm. All right, just just a few, just like two or three more. Um, can anyone remember the first time you asked someone to dance? No one wants to admit it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awkward, right? It, it has that, that sort of uh, feeling to it. But I, I often feel like the things that um, are sometimes the places of the highest awkwardness are often the places of highest lyricism for me. So I try to move into those places because I don't want to write about them. I don't want to think about them. Um, so anyway, here's a, here's a poem about um, that moment. Um, maybe it'll sound familiar to you. It's about other things as well. But it's called A Boondock. Lisa was the first girl in my life I asked to dance. I mean, a brass band was playing early jump blues, not a Lewis Jordan situation, but you know, the Andrews sisters, Bugle Boy and Company B, that business. Anyway, we were a shave under nine years old, two hearing kids in an American Sign Language performance group. And when we were done signing the lyrics to God Bless America, and after the polite applause of donors circled back into olives drowning in gin, the dance floor opened. I asked Lisa Colasso, she loved to say like Cola Company, to dance, sheepishly, looking an inch above my glasses, thinking what would it be to gently press my brown cheek to one of her freckles. I'll be damned if my desires will ever be that simple again. Her father was a Catholic from India. She had his features and dark hair, but her mother's Nebraskan complexion. I remember being afraid for no reason, and my hand was shaking like I was signing applause when she put it on her hip, lassoed my neck, and we spun. I didn't know a waltz from a Roger Rabbit. All I could think is, Scarecrow, Michael Jackson, I mean, imitate and ease on down the road. We rocked these bluest skylight t-shirts decorated with handprints, a, a fundraising situation for Be an Angel, this NGO funded by Lisa's family. My mama must have known it was going to be one of those fly in a bowl of milk moments, so she insisted. My pants rest above my navel, shirt tucked, Vaseline like Yahweh's own glory across my forehead. Call me Moses at the foot of Sinai. My tablets a pair of left feet. Just kidding. I was Gregory Hines in a Harlem night. And if there was a golden calf, Lisa and I were it. When Lisa moved, I moved. And just like that, we knew we'd never see a promised land. Instead of stones, the donors threw their eyebrows in the air, forgetting how colorblind they'd been before Jen. Okay, last one. Ode to Lando Calrissian. This is the kind of poem I am. If you were stunting in a galaxy far, far away, blue cape, suave, with a gold lining that would shame the sun, with a cool walk, in a gambler hustle, if you had a hairstyle so fresh you'd claim to have won it off an out-of-work Cloud City cosmetologist, if even your eyebrows had scoundrel in their arch, if everybody knew the music bumped cargo hold to cockpit in the Millennium Falcon, a name straight out of P-Funk, if everyone could see those hands churning the dark dream of stars into the buttermilk of a hip brother running his own city, if we asked, where are all the black people in the galaxy? Would you help us? Would you bet on us? Thank you.
All right. It's my pleasure to um, welcome up our next reader, uh, who is um, Sarah Burnett. Sarah is one of the finalists for the 2019 Poetry Contest um, for the Enoch Pratt and LPR Poetry Contest. Um, she is the author of the chapbook Mother Tongue from Dancing Girl Press. Her poems have appeared in Barrow Street, Poet Lore, uh, Swim, the Cortland Review, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA in poetry from the University of Maryland and an MA in English literature from the University of Vermont. She lives in Silver Spring, Maryland with her family. Please welcome this wonderful, wonderful poet and her wonderful poems, Sarah Burnett. two readers, but uh, I was like, oh wait, you have to read? I just want to listen. <laughs> um, but thank you um, to, uh, to Shailene, to everyone who hosted, to Stephen um, for your journal and for um, partnering with the Pratt. Um, and thank you for all for coming out in this weather. Um, Okay, so the poem um, that was selected as a finalist is titled Chaussée uh, La Femme, um, and that translates to Look for the Woman, and it comes from a novel, The Mohicans of Paris by Alexandre Dumas in 1854. I don't speak French, but Wikipedia says it basically translates to No matter what the problem, a woman is often the root cause. And the other thing I will say is I, I wrote this very shortly after the uh, Kavanaugh hearings, right after Dr. Christine Bazzi Ford testified. So um, it's coming out of that moment and many moments. Cherchez la femme. There never was the hysterical woman locked in an attic an animal on all fours tearing out her hair or threading a loom and unthreading it every night so she'd never have to bed her believed to be dead husband's friends. There never was the angry woman wailing over a kitchen sink, rubbing her hands raw, trying to cleanse herself of death, or a group of women banded together denying men sex as if they weren't already assumed plundered. There never was a black or red dress, a smoking gun, la femme fatale, je sais la femme. There never was a willing muse, never a bruise, a blemish, a scar. There never was the woman sacrificed on an altar with goats to sanctify a city who thought she had it coming and they, they would be saved. There never was the woman who drowned herself mysteriously in a lake as if there was no cause for her nightmares. Never the scarlet A, the prison break, the abortion clinic bust, a mob-wielding pitchforks, the mist rent, stolen paycheck, burning pyres, the chant of lock her up. There never was that tower with a key, long strands of braided hair she could cut herself free from. There was the walk home, and every day the gauntlet of howlers, Howlers, hollers, hoopla, the construction worker whistles, the can I get some fries with that shake, daddy's girl, teacher's pet, stank liquor breath, unmerciful panic, unheard prayer, the silence after a thousand doors slammed shut, slut. There was a blunt instrument, her body. There was an accident, her mouth. There never was the hysterical woman. There was the man and he would not die, no matter how many times we cried, Father. No matter how many times he was swallowed in dirt, the earth just spit him back out. Um, the next poem um, is entitled Student Handbook. Um, it's unfortunately, again, apropos after the recent mass shootings in um, Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas. Um, before I stayed at home with my youngest, who's two, um, I was a public school teacher for many years in, in D.C. public schools and also in rural Vermont. And one of the most terrifying experiences is, of course, those lockdown drills. And it's terrifying for students, but it's also really terrifying for teachers because 
You know, you're supposed to be the calm, collected, have it all together. Um, the other thing I would say is that there's some quoted text in here, and it's from um, a shooting survivor, Jonathan Coates. He was a 17-year-old student who was at the cafeteria at the time when a 15-year-old shooter opened fire on the first day of classes at Perry Hall High School in Perry Hall, Maryland in 2012. And um, the student was, one student was wounded um, and teachers quickly disarmed the shooter and classes resumed the following day. The poem is written in the form of an ABC Darien, which means that every line begins more or less with the first letter of the alphabet. Student Handbook. A is for alligator in AR-15. B is for backpack, bump stock, bolt, what you lock or run from. C is for closet where the teacher tells you to hide. D is for duck. E is for everybody hold hands as we exit the building. F is for four or five friends eating lunch. G is for gum and guns, which are not allowed at school, of course. H is for house, or H could be for help. I is for I can statements, as in, I can draw, I can dance, I can hear shots. At first I heard a pop and thought it was a bad because people do that. J is for jiggle, like jello, the handles of a locked classroom door, the hands of a teacher. K is for her keys jingling in the kindergarten classroom, and K is also for kindness. L is for lockdown. M is for music, maracas, magazines of 30 rounds on a website cheaper than dirt. N is for the NRA buying politicians and thus schools, and how is this normal? Hashtag never again. O is for over and over and over again. P is for play. Pretend to be sleeping polar bears. Q is for question, as in why is it raining? How are babies made? Are you my angel? R is for rules. Look both ways before crossing the street. Clean up your mess. Report unhealthy thoughts. Or R is for reading. Recess. S is for school, obviously, and scared. T is for teachers and 208 school shootings since Columbine. U is for unthinkable, unpatriotic United States of America. V is for visuals. W is for walkouts, when, where, why. X is for in the crosshairs, children. Y is for yellow, slowed down. And Z is for zeroing out or in. Days, of course, now that number is hi is higher. But I think it was like a, a year and a half ago, something like that. Um, this um, poem is uh, well. This is really my introduction. It's called "Throw Roses at Me" after Sharon Olds. Throw roses at me. I have wanted to be a juggler of flaming pins, my body rocking to counter the motion of each thrust up, giving and taking fire close enough to burn, close enough to create sensation, an illusion of control. See me pedal a tricycle while swinging fire on ropes, not as spectacle or feat, but as matter of fact, matter of being. I have wanted to ignite the flame, not be its torch, Lusted to wear a gold sequin plaje de luces, dazzling brilliance in a Sevilla sun, and strut my bravery as bull and man, speck the sand with blood and sweat. Throw roses at me then, ride the painted horses out of their carols. Claim a star, a cluster even, though they burn on their own. I have loved the weight of this desire, and wonder if it's more than the body born to it. My pelvic saddles, haphazard mass of chicken wire, knots, and mucky sponges. And it is. Praise my body, because it carried a body inside it like a mollusk. First divine light, a surgical lamp. 
Then blood and sweat and milk from blue-green veined breasts. My spine arched, my belly heaved, the whole shell of me shook open like a battered beehive. Praise this body, then, for doing nothing extraordinarily spectacular. Only what women have always done. Expand the universe by one. Born myth and matter of being from ball and socket-hinged hips. When they took her out, it was nothing like cutting open a brain or calf. I warmed her as if my body were a flame I'd known would endure burning. Light spilling to light. Her red-faced bird head on my chest squirming for my nipple to suck. Praise her body throbbing. A jellyfish on sand. A starfish pulsing in the night. The blind cipher of it. The sky indiscriminately cupping its stars and scattering them. because I, you know, it's getting quite big now, and so it's kind of in the way. It's better to stay on the side. It's my second, it's my second one. Um, uh, anyway, so this, this poem, um, Endling, is a very new poem. She's actually featured in it. She's about um, two, almost three. And um, it is inspired from an article in this, this past July, it's uh, the Atlantic, um, an article called The Last of Its Kind by Ed Young, which I invite anyone to read. Um, it's about snails, <laughs> but more than that. Endling. <clears throat> There's a man who cares for the last snail of its kind, Achinella apex fulva, knows precisely how much moisture, shade, and light it needs to thrive while it spends its dwindling time in a glass cabinet. Don't think about what you can start. Think about what you can end, was the advice I heard on a time management podcast while slicing bananas for my daughter's breakfast. The banana comes from Guatemala, where its kind is plagued by the fusarium fungus to a possible, almost certain, if it continues at this rate, extinction. I've never been to Guatemala, seen a rotting banana plant, or touched a snail's glossy shell of the kind that resembles, as I read, the palette of a chocolate box. Dark brown, chestnut, white, the occasional splash of mint. I watch my daughter collect stones in her plastic bucket, clinking them beside her as she smiles, running from one corner of our yard to another. Impossible to say if this July is the warmest month since the last warmest month until it is. My dread, a garden crawling with invasive insects. Later, she smashes bananas at the table between her dirt-crusted fingernails, laughs at the stickiness while I try to finish the article I started days ago about Achinella apexfola, whose largest threat is, you might have guessed, another snail. Eugalinda rosea aptly named for its rosy-hued carapace, who will follow the slimy trail of its gastropod cousin, then yank it from its shell with its serrated tongue and swallow it like Cronus, shell and all. When a species is the last of its kind, it's called an endling, a word that reminds me of changeling, such a fairy swap child I call my own. I've made this place for her, warm, soft, a place I'll, eventually, no longer be allowed to enter, that may not even survive me. <laughs> and this last poem um, is very short. Um, I've always been enchanted by the myth of Demeter and Persephone, like many people. And as a young child, a young girl, I was always obsessed with Persephone, this young, beautiful maiden who gets taken. Um, into the underworld. But now as I get older and I'm a mother, I identify more or at least somewhat with Demeter. So it's called Demeter's Remorse. All the days she was mine alone, that second before a cut leads clean through a white bandage red, that summer we canned pears. I still haven't opened them.
Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, it, it's always such a pleasure to get to see what kind of work comes in to the Enoch Pratt Feed um, Poetry Contest. Um, and, you know, it, the decisions have been sometimes right into the wire, 11th hour, you know, back and forth, um, because the work has always been so good. Um, and so we're, we're thankful. We're thankful that LPR, and we're thankful um, uh, to, to, to have that place of trying to um, decide um, between good and good for a, for a poetry contest. Um, so our next reader is going to be Tom Large. Um, Tom is also a finalist for the Enoch Pratt Free 2019 Poetry Contest, and he studied English literature at Swarthmore College and finished an MA in, uh, at John Hopkins Writing Seminars um, before shifting to the School of Medicine to train um, as a psychotherapist. Since 1977, he has been in private practice here in Baltimore, and although he has read and loved poetry since he was a teenager, he only began writing his own poems about five years ago. His wife Elizabeth and he have been married for 51 years and live in Baltimore City. They have one daughter and two granddaughters. Um, I want to welcome uh, Tom Large. Please welcome him with a large round of applause. <laughs> Thank you again, Stephen. And um, I, I'm uh, I'm uh, just blown away by the uh, the poets. Uh, it's just I feel so honored to be in this lunch. Um, I'm uh, blind, legally blind, so I can't read ink print. So I'm gonna I've recorded a few poems and I'm gonna play them through the microphone. I hope you can hear them. And, uh, and then I'll recite the poem uh, that was uh, honored by the contest. Uh, so let's see here. You'll hear some uh, unpoetic sounds here. <laughs> I think. So this first poem, uh, I spent a lot of time um, several years ago on the phone with a, with a close friend, old, old friend from college, um, who was very ill and lived in another city, another state. And this poem came out of these long uh, phone conversations with my friend Sam. It's called Another Room. Through a, a book to find the next 
you've all had the experience of uh, expecting a snowfall as a kid uh, and hoping school would close and all that. Um, this, uh, this is about, um, well, it's about expectation and uncertainty and, and some snow. Snow predicted. No matter what the forecast says about that approaching band of precipitation on the radar, isn't it just right that in real life it's only rain soaking the western counties? And isn't it just right that here our fate remains uncertain? Regardless of whether I'm sure, my snow shovel still leans where I left it last March, ready against the garage wall, or whether the city salt trucks are loaded and there's milk enough for a day or two, still the snow arrives, falling indiscriminately, whitening almost everything, and settling into deep stillness, any conceivable question of disbelief. directive uh, for my doc saying, um, you know, what's to happen if I'm incapacitated and uh, whether, whether it should be extreme measures taken. And this, this poem, uh, sorry, uh, this poem uh, was prompted by that experience. It's called Unwritten Letters. Unwritten letters. The letter I just posted was not anything very important, a form from my doctor's file, except that it prescribes, after all is said and done, what's to happen to my body. Here, alive, I've never been sure. And shouldn't one have a destination? I could have written a letter to you, saying that I was sorry not to be in touch or to my daughter on the other coast, saying, my dear daughter, did I tell you you're terrific? Just terrific. Did I say it enough? Good friends, old friends, could have been contacted. Plans could have been made for lunch or dinner or a meeting on the train to some place that I have never been. You could have all come over and we might have played some blues or I could have met you downtown for dinner and a show. Forgiveness could have been asked for, or we could have laughed our way through a second bottle and not continued old arguments. But no, today was the day, hanging out at home alone, I secured my body's afterlife. And then a poem about um, uh, growing up uh, at the beach a lot and uh, learning to swim in the open ocean. This is uh, Belle Bowie. Belle Bowie. Something to steer for that's chained against the drift, tolling the permanence of motion wind and wave indistinguishable like this present and that past it rises up and leans down each passing swell its looming iron presence calling across a stretch of years back to one late summer day when i was ten and strong strong enough to swim way out where the sea is colder in its shadow and its tolling, its endless tolling, would call me to open ocean and not the channel home. Um, and, oh, God, Jesus. Uh, the, um, 
This last poem is, is uh, the finalist, um, it's called October. October. In the windy silence this afternoon, you and I spin cast at perch, schooled in a tidewater cove. They aren't fooled, but then again, neither do they seem to mind the wags and twirls of our band dancers. Alluring little eyes, we arc into their wild cotillion. Hours pass. We hooked not one of them. When I was just a boy, you said, the fish don't bite schooled up like that. They're readying to move on somewhere. We both know this, and still we're here. It's not that you died exactly on these October afternoons, but that you're just off casting, standing in the marsh on another plane with red maple leaves blowing down from the woods across a cove, and a ragged line of geese scribbled against the leaden sky. I see you standing on a far dune, casting into a school, caught in a rhythm not your own, and reeling away the afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. How's everyone feeling? Good? Good. I hope you're feeling good, because the next poet is the Enoch Pratt Free 2019 Poetry winner, Jalen Harris. So let me tell you a little bit about how the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contest works. Um, people send in poems from all over the state of Maryland. Um, they are um, um, looked at and reviewed by a committee of librarians who then send us um, a, a set of 40 to 50 for us to judge, okay? All the judging is done anonymously. Uh, we don't know who the poets are. Um, and then uh, a number of people from staff and myself from the LPR, we just hash it out. We just make our decisions, we, we make our piles. Um, and I can say unequivocally that the poem that won the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contest was in everybody's pile um, when we were hashing out who to pick for this um, contest. Um, I can brag and brag on Jalen, who is a poet here in Baltimore City, whose work is wonderful, lyrical, uh, questioning, inventive, um, but instead of doing all that, I'll read her bio. <laughs> Jalen Harris, the 2019 Poetry Contest winner, is a Baltimore native, native, currently pursuing an MFA at the University of Baltimore, where she is the inaugural recipient of the Michael F. Klein Fellowship for Social Justice. She is also the founder of Soft Savage Press, a press dedicated to promoting the works of black people. She received her BA in linguistics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her work has appeared in Transition, Gordon Square Review, Super Stoked Words, and Scalawag Magazine. Please welcome Jayla Harris. ticket, reading some poems. Um, in 1964, Sister Rosetta, Rosetta Tharp performs in Manchester, England. Children, did you know you can wear a fox around your neck and still be a woman black as the inside of its belly, plucking the broken down station Look up, children, because this train is Rosetta raining, not an invitation to pull extras to the altar. This train is rocking other worlds at the waists. See how she strokes her guitar, a woman holding another woman. Hear her out, electric growl, wigs stay on, 
sigh off each clap, gap tooth, look up, children. God's got the whole rose in her hands. So if you haven't figured it out, I write a lot about black women in the past, present, and future. And in 3022, Moms Mabley is still telling jokes. She's at the Apollo. She's making us all laugh. Moms Mabley at the Apollo 3022. I'm so old, my teeth divorced me for the fork. So old like when Cotton used to pick slaves and the Zodiac asked me to be the 13th sign. I'm older than my birthday. So old like Columbus did my first tattoo. And Sacagawea asked me what was just around the river bend. Old like when rocks used to play marbles. And I'm so old, gravity asked me how to hang. Starts tap dancing. I'm so old, my knees divorced me for the fork. Divorced me for them even older women, Arth and Ritus. I'm so old, leaves on my skirt changed colors in autumn. I'm so old, the Grim Reaper begs me not to knock. And old, like my first stage was an auction. Old, like I'm the reason Shakespeare likes black girls. I'm so old, this dance looks like I've fallen and I can't get up. I'm so old, when I was young, a Democrat was an elephant, and an elephant wasn't in the room. I'm so old, when I was growing up, gay was straight and old. I'm so old, I'm sold, I'm sold, I'm my mother and my grandmama. And you are old, like you forgot you gave me this name, laughing dollars at this auction. keep y'all. I'm going to read the poem y'all came to, <laughs> to hear. I'm so thankful that all of you guys came out tonight, and I'm so thankful to Stephen and Shailene and LPR and the city and poetry. And I'm just really thankful for Phyllis Wheatley as well for um, starting <laughs> the tradition of black published poetry women in this country. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. And thankful also to our ancestor, Toni Morrison, who just passed. I'm thankful. So I had a vision that Phyllis Wheatley was at the Kmart, and she really wanted a piece of gum. So she had this cord in her hand, and she's about to put it in the slot. And she looks at it, and she sees Washington, and she's just like, Phyllis Wheatley questions the quarter. Who head of the quarter? Who 25 pennies add them up? Who spangled the liberty of in God we founded? Who tied till the black hand? Who wrote founding? Who indivisible the divisible by four? Who chew red USA? Who chew blue? Who chew white? Who creaked the colony? Who half time times two? Who ridges on the side of the circle? Who meter the black thumb like land? Who fit the coin in the bubblegum slot? Who white Jesus gathered the 13? Who white head, white wig, white tongue? Who little white lie? Who Mount Martha? Who wrote Latin on the back? Who lying like it can be read? Who changes state like a lake? Who live free or die? Who popped the Coke can with a quarter? Who sketched the shack with the mountains in the back? Who vend the womb for a coin? Who set the old line and rode the island? Who courtesan the black road with white ticks? Who made it circle like a too perfect eye? Who slung it like a round, wrong rope? Who out of many won? Who quintet the nickel five times five? Who sixpence the land for tails? Now turn it over. Who on who back? Thank you so much.
Thank you. Thank you so much to Jalen. Thank you so much to Sarah, to Tom. Thank you so much to Joseph. Um, I hope this reading has given you a sense of what kinds of work come into the Enoch Pratt Group Poetry Contest and maybe inspires you to write and send into the Poetry Contest next year. Um, we are so thankful to the Pratt, to Tracy, to all everyone who's on the Pratt staff for allowing us this opportunity in this wonderful building. Um, they are, there are copies of some of the poets' books for sale. There are copies of the Little Patuxent Review for sale if you want to purchase them. They're at the table right on, um, on your way out. Um, I just want to say thank you to all of you for being really great hosts. I hope that you feel filled up with poetry. I hope your imagination feels stretched and good. Um, and I hope that you will carry it into your lives going forward. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.